Have you um, have you ever tried to change something and found out it wasn't that easy? About uh, what three years ago, I began a, a new a new phase of my forty uh, year process of dieting, and um, and it's actually been successful. I've had I've had some some real good results. I've lost some weight. I've become healthier and. The doctor likes most of my markers better than she used to. So, so it's been good, and yet at the same time, it's been hard. I know, I know what works for me, and at the same time, it's very hard. It's hard to change because change is hard. Uh, there's not, uh, certainly not a week. Maybe there are days that go by, but certainly there's no, no week that goes by where I don't think, boy, I'd like some french fries or something like that. So, um, I haven't had french fries in quite a while, but, um, but uh, but change is hard, and maybe you can relate. Maybe you can say, you know what, I have tried to change things in my life too. And maybe for you, it was the same thing. Maybe it was diet, or maybe you said, you know what, I need to get some exercise. I need to to get more rest. I need to get to sleep sooner. You know, not stay up all night. Maybe maybe it's I need to cut down on the amount of TV I'm watching because I'm just wasting my time, or or I need to get off social media because no good can possibly come from social media. Whatever it is, maybe you've tried to change something and you've said, boy, this is actually harder than I thought. You know that that you have some success, but but at the same time you don't always succeed. You find that there's always something that is that is pulling you back or or getting in your way. Uh, you 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 get in your own way, and and that's what I want to talk about today, um, because it's what makes change hard. And the word for it that we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of different words for it, but the word I like best for it comes from uh, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt coined this or came up with this this analogy. He said that that we're like two people. That every person has like two little little people inside them. One is an elephant, and the other is another person riding the elephant. And the elephant pretty much does what it wants, but the rider can give it direction. The rider can say, "French fries are bad for you," and maybe the elephant will pay attention. But maybe it won't. And if it doesn't, well, good luck because the elephant's going to go get those French fries. And that's that's kind of the model that he recommends. Is you think about the world in terms of of that picture, you 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 can get things done. You can make changes. The elephant can be persuaded, um, but it's not easy. And if you do it wrong, then the elephant. Uh, won't cooperate, and and maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Maybe you've you've had the experience of of trying to change some kind of a habit. Um, maybe it was uh, you know the ones I mentioned earlier. Maybe it was it was uh, trying to stop a bad habit. You wanted to stop smoking, or you wanted to cut down on your drinking, or or some other substance. Whatever it might have been, you might have tried to do this, and and it 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 was like I know what I want to do. I know what I'm trying to do, and at the same time. You know, some days I have more success than others, and the reason is because of essentially that elephant that is that is um, persuadable, but not always willing to do what you want it to do. And my guess is that you've you've experienced. Like, my guess is pretty much everybody's experienced this. Um, and the reason I guess that is because I see people were experiencing that. 2,000 years ago. The Apostle Paul talks about this exact same thing in his letter to the Romans. In fact, the whole first half of the letter to the Romans is pretty much this idea, this idea of, I don't I don't know why I can't do the thing that I want to do. And in fact, he uses that exact um, sentence in, in uh, Romans chapter 7, right before the passage we heard. He says this, he says, I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. He describes the situation. I know. I know what I want to do. It's perfectly clear to me. 
I'm not under any illusions about those french fries. But I eat them anyway. So, so Paul has experienced this, and my guess is most people experience it from time to time. Now, the, the language Paul uses, um, I don't even know if Paul would have seen an elephant. He traveled a lot, and maybe he might have seen an elephant. I, I don't know how common they were in the Mediterranean world. Uh, we know famously about uh, Hannibal and Carthage, but, um, but I don't know about um, uh, elephants. But he doesn't use the word elephant. The word that Paul uses as he talks about flesh. He says, he said, it is my flesh. The, the thing that is preventing me from doing the thing I want to do is my flesh. Now, that's an unfortunate word because in our culture today, what, what we hear or what we associate with the word flesh is we, we think about sex. Sex and lust, we, we go straight to that place. And uh, certainly there are times when that is exactly the problem. But, but the word that Paul's getting at is much bigger than that. Um, and, and, um, the, uh, the Christian writer C.S. Lewis, he said, he said that when, when flesh is the issue, he said, yes, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. He says, all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. And, and if you've ever had the experience of, you know exactly what to say that will calm the other person down, that will kind of lead to peace and reconciliation, and you say something else because, uh, because they need to be told who's the boss. They need to be shown what's what. You need to speak to the manager because of that flesh, that elephant, that thing in you that insists on not doing what would work perfectly well. What would, what would actually make the situation better? That part of us, that, that internal thing, Paul calls the flesh. And because flesh is a difficult word for us because of all, all those other things, we, we, um, our translation today uses a different word. It, it, it talks about the, um, it says it is the basis of selfishness, or sometimes it says the, the self-centered, uh, nature or, or the quality of being self-centered. So, so it talks about self-centeredness, and that's a difficult word for us too, because we're Americans, and um, and you know we pride pride ourselves on self-reliance and independence, and and that's a message for another day. But but it's difficult for us to kind of get at what he's talking about. But but whether you want to call it the elephant, or whether you want to call it the flesh, or whether you want to call it uh, the basis of selfishness, um, whether you want to call it your DNA, whether you want to call it societal conditioning, whether you want to call it an invisible demon sitting on your shoulder whispering temptation into your ear. It really doesn't matter where it comes from or what you call it. What matters is that we experience this. It keeps us from doing the thing we want to do, just like Paul. And and because of that, um, we uh, we fail to hit our target. We are aiming for this thing, and we fail to hit it. We we hit over there. We the bullseye's there. We hit over there. We've missed our target. And the word for that in the Bible is sin. And again, like all these other words, sin has kind of taken on a character of its own. But that's what it means. It means you're aiming at one thing and you hit another thing. And so. Um, so the the flesh, the the selfish nature, all these different ways of getting out at the elephant are whatever it is that keeps you from doing the thing you want to do, keeps you from hitting the target that you're aiming at. And there are two approaches that people use 
there's at least two approaches that people use to deal with this situation. One of them is willpower. They say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to white knuckle this. I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to uh, scrunch up my face like this and I'm going to gut it out. We use, we use these, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to not pick up the donut, whatever it is. I'm going to do this thing with sheer willpower. And that works except when it doesn't. Be, you know, and, and it's terrifying. It's like it's like driving a car. I mean, depending on what it is, the, the the image I have is is very clearly trying to drive a car. I was late. I was in a hurry. I was trying to drive too fast, but I was also going downhill on a windy mountain road. And so I am white knuckling that steering wheel the whole way down, knowing that one mistake is is going to send me into a ditch. That that's the problem with willpower. Is that how? How successfully can I do this thing? Am I going to be able to keep the car between the lines? Because if, if I fail, if I, if my attention wanders, if I just, you know, just mess up, if, if my willpower breaks even for a moment, then I'm off into the ditch. I am, I'm in real trouble. Um, and instead of, instead of my car being in the ditch, it's my life or it's a relationship or it's my sobriety, or it's something else. Willpower is a hard thing to lean on. So, that leads to the other approach a lot of people have tried, which is to pick our battles, uh, which is another way of saying, not this one. And the reason for that is we, 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 we tell ourselves, well, look, the elephant, the flesh, the, the selfish nature is just too powerful. It's going to win some. So you gotta pick the ones that are winnable. You gotta decide which battles are winnable. You say, you know what? Fries won't kill you. And in fact, fries will fortify you. They'll give you the energy so you'll have willpower tomorrow. Okay? So we tell ourselves these things. We basically throw in the towel. We, we pick our battles, which means a lot of the time we are simply saying, you do what you want, elephant. You know, you're gonna do, you're gonna do it anyway. Why should I try and stop you? I'll just get to get squished. So, I'm not even going to do that. By, by the way, I was thinking to myself, I'm really giving elephants a bad rap in this thing. I don't have any problem with elephants. This is a metaphorical elephant. So, so if you're an elephant fancier, I don't, I don't mean them any harm. Uh, there's, elephants are wonderful animals. So, um, but, but you're going to tell yourself, you know what, I can't possibly beat an elephant. Um, I can't make the elephant behave, so I'm just going to let it run wild. And both of these, both of these approaches lead to fear. Because, because you are afraid. You're afraid you're going to make the mistake. The car's going to go off into the ditch. The elephant's going to run wild. You know, whatever it is, you're afraid of losing control or you're afraid if you've abdicated control, you're afraid of what the elephant's going to do, um, uh, since you aren't controlling it. And both of these approaches, whether you're, you're trying to, to white knuckle your elephant into, into submission or whether you are simply saying, well, you know what, it's going to do what it's going to do. Both of them lead to fear because we don't know what the outcome's going to be. And fear makes us a slave. In fact, this is another thing Paul's, the Apostle Paul says. Um, he says, he says that, um, this law at work in his body, uh, the one he was talking about before, it wages a war against the law of my mind and makes me, pri- takes me prisoner with the law of sin that is in my body. He says, I feel like a prisoner. I feel like a slave. I, I can't, I don't have any freedom. I'm, I'm stuck. And so he concludes by saying, who's, I says, I'm a miserable human being who will deliver me because of this situation, because he knows that there are things he would like to change in his life. And at the same time, 
He has this elephant. He has this flesh, this selfish nature that is preventing him. So that's how he wraps up the, the first part of this discussion in chapter 7. And then he goes into chapter 8. And that's the place our, our passage comes from. And I'm not going to look at all of chapter 8, but I just want to point out the very beginning of chapter 8. The very first thing he says is, there is no condemnation. He says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, God knows what you're dealing with, and God doesn't hate you. God is not going to condemn you. That's why he sent Jesus. He says, let yourself off the mat, because God's not putting you there. So, we should read everything that follows in that light. This is not how you can get yourself sorted out so God won't hate you anymore. This is, this is God doesn't hate you. God loves you. God has already acted in Christ to give you a, 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 a glorious future. And so the question now is, okay, let's go back to the elephant. Let's go back to the flesh. Let's go back to the selfish nature and talk about the thing that I want to do differently in my life, the thing that I figured out and it's something I want to do. How do I talk about that? Let's talk about that. How can I deal with that? So that's... um. That's uh, where we go now in chapter 8, and we begin in um, verse 9. Paul says, you aren't self-centered. You aren't literally in the flesh. You you aren't governed by the elephant. The The elephant's there. I'm not going to deny it. The, the flesh is there. The selfish nature is there. But you aren't controlled by it. You are not self-centered. And Paul is making that as a statement. He says, because of what Christ has done, this is an accomplished fact. This is not, you know, if you, you know, follow my, you know, time-proven recipe, if you send your dollar, you know, he's not saying this is something that could be true if only you do whatever. He's saying this is something that has already happened. You aren't in the flesh. He says, instead, you are in the spirit. And um, uh, he says, he says, you're in the spirit which is what we're going to talk about today. But, uh, but he says, he says, you're in the spirit. And then he does this, he does this explanation of what that all means. And there's going to be a lot of ifs in here. And I just want to point out, remember, the ifs are flowing out of that opening statement where he said, he said, you aren't selfish. You aren't self-centered. You aren't in the flesh. You aren't dominated by the elephant. So all of the ifs flow out of that. So we can read them as senses. Okay. He, so he says, he says, um, he says, you are in the spirit. If in fact God's spirit lives in you, but you aren't self-centered. So we know that. So we can turn that around and we can say, instead, you're in the spirit since God's spirit lives in you. He says, if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. But since what we've just talked about, since Christ is in you, the spirit is your life because of God's righteousness. But the body is dead because of sin. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and we've already agreed he does, then the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. So a lot of ifs, but the the don't miss that it all flows out of that opening idea. You aren't controlled by the elephant. You aren't controlled by the flesh. And I, I just point out to you here, as we as we move forward, I point out, today is Trinity Sunday. And notice, this is the work of the entire Trinity. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. This is a, the mutual effort of the entire Godhead is at work 
bringing this about. And it's, it's, and its basis is not anything you've done, but like he said, something Christ did. Christ died and was raised. So it, it is, it, the, the reason it works is not because you're a good Christian or you go to church every day. It's because of what Christ has already done. And so he says, so working back up from the very bottom up to verse nine, he says, you aren't self-centered. So that's, that's a, a statement, but what does it mean? What does it mean that I'm not self-centered? Okay. Then how come those fries are so attractive? Why, why do I keep wanting to order French fries? And uh, that's what he's going to talk about now. He says, he says, he says, uh, if you remember at the end of chapter seven, he said, who will, who will, who will deliver me? I'm a miserable person who will deliver me. And we should remember, Paul is a first century Jew. And as a first century Jew, when he asked the question, when he says, I'm a slave, who will deliver me? Any first century Jew would have said, I know the answer to this question because every year at Passover we remember the great act of, uh, of liberation that God did in the Exodus. God liberated the entire nation of Israel from their slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness into the Promised Land. Every first-century Jew would have immediately gone there if you said if you said um, slave and liberate or slave and deliver, they would have gone straight to the Exodus. And that's good for them, but it's also good for us because we just concluded a lengthy series from the Exodus. So it's kind of fresh in our memory. And what we learn there is that, in fact, God is someone who delivers people. That when people are in trouble, when people are in a, a situation they can't get out of on their own, it is God's nature to liberate them. So, now Paul is going to start using Exodus language to explain this. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. He says, we have an obligation. And then he, it's like he stops himself. He says, wait, wait. Let me, don't misunderstand me. When I say obligation, he says, it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. We aren't obliged to do whatever the elephant says. We're not obliged to listen to the flesh. We're not obliged to live on the basis of selfishness. He says, if you live on the basis of selfishness, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. He says, if if you live your life by saying, look, the elephant's going to get what it wants, the elephant's going to do what it wants, then you can give up on sobriety. You can give up on a healthy relationship. You can give up on whatever it is that you're trying to work on, whatever that thing is. Your, your, your aspirations will die. The, the thing that God made you to become will die. It will die with you. That, 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 that hope that you had, that thing you were aiming at, that target, you'll lose it. You will never hit it. You will never hit that target. Your aspiration will die. If we live on the basis of selfishness, we, we have to surrender all of our dreams. But if by the Spirit we put to death the actions of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit. What Paul is saying here is, because of what Christ has done, because of all the things in that previous paragraph, because of that, there's a new elephant in town. Yes, there's the old elephant. It's still there. It's still going to push back. It's still going to, you know, uh, do what it can to run whatever elephants do. I don't know. But the elephant is going to, is going to not necessarily do what you want it to do. But he says there's another elephant. The, the Spirit of God is living in us. We are in the Spirit. There's another elephant. He says, 
if you live on the basis of selfishness, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. You cannot, you cannot make the elephant do anything in your own power. But there's another elephant living in you. There is the Spirit of God. And He can subdue the elephant. So, He says, so he's he's done with the obligation. Now he's going back to his thought, his Exodus language. He says, "All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters." This is this is straight out of the Exodus. He's saying, if you if you picture the Israelites, they're they're moving out of Egypt across through the wilderness. They're following the cloud, a pillar, and and um, fire. They are led by the Spirit, and the reason for that is that they are God's children. God did not liberate them from slavery in Egypt just to make them new slaves in the promised land. God's not a human trafficker who who raided a bunch of slaves from one place and is taking them someplace else. God liberated the Israelites to make them his children, to give them a, a new way of living in the land of promise. So he says, all who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a, a spirit of slavery to lead back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With the same spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. So he's saying, because of what, because of what God has done, we have, we have this, um, we have this relationship, um, with God, not as, as slaves of a, of a new master, but as children. And in verse 17, he says, and the implication of that is if we are God's children, we are his heirs. We we have the original relationship that God created us to have. We we are His creatures who He put in the garden to tend it and keep it. That if Adam is the son of God in that sense, that we become heirs too. So we have been given back our original vocation. In the book of Genesis, um, it tells us that um, God put the man in the uh, Garden of Eden to farm it and to keep it. He put the human being in the garden to to till it and ke- to farm it and keep it and take care of it. Too many translations. All right. Um, so um, so we have that vocation. We can do what God made us to do. We can be that kind of people. But there's a but there's a catch. And he wraps it up in verse 17. He says, "We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. If we really suffer with Him, that we can also be so that we can also be glorified with Him." What does he say? He's saying that God made you to be like Adam. God made you to be um, whole and and um, able. God made you to reflect his goodness into a good world. That's what God made us to be. And because of the spirit living in us, we can we can make the elephant not hinder us. That's too many that's too complicated. Paul Paul's saying the spirit working in us can enable us to do the things that the elephant would prevent. But we don't live in the garden. That we are still in a messed up world. The elephant is still there. And, and by the way, we're, we're children of God. We're not, we're not adults. We're not, we haven't grown up fully into the likeness of Christ. We are still figuring our way out. We're still learning how to do this. So we're going to make mistakes. We're going to suffer. We're going to be weak and tired and give up. We're going to do all those things. He says we're going to suffer. And, and because of that, you know, the world's going to hurt us. The world was, is going to hurt anyone who is becoming like Christ anyway. We know that from his own story. But he says, don't 
forget. This is not God judging you. This is not, this is not the, the, your karma catching up with you. This is simply the fact that you are becoming like Christ. You are able to achieve the things that you had set your heart on. The things that you felt called to do in a hard world. So he says, don't misinterpret that. Don't say, well, the elephant gets its way eventually. Say, no, the elephant doesn't have any control over me. I can do what I feel that God is calling me to do. I can do what I believe I was made to be. I can be that person. But I will suffer. So he says, and we will suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. So, what do we do with this? Well, what we do with it is we do what he says. He says, we recognize that there is an elephant, there is a flesh, there is a, a self-centered nature, and it will try to prevent us. It's going to push back. But what he's saying is because the Spirit is living in us, we can push right back. We can say, no, you're not the boss of me. There's two elephants. There's there's you, and you're powerful, and I can't always get you to do what I want. But you know what? The Spirit is living inside me too, and the Spirit can pacify you. The Spirit can make you you know, get out of my way. The Spirit can keep you from preventing me from doing what I want to do. So, keep trying. When the, when the elephant pushes back, push right back. Resist the resistance. Not from willpower, but from the knowledge that the Spirit of God is living in you, making it possible to overcome the elephant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see every day the wreckage of lives from people who have who have lost control of the steering wheel that the elephant has just run wild you see people who have just given up trying to to keep the elephant from doing whatever it wants lord you have provided in us your spirit you have poured it out on us we talked about that last week at pentecost help us to trust that the spirit is capable of making us able to do the things that you are calling us to do, to be the people that we were made to be, to be uh, children growing up into the likeness of our elder brother Christ. We pray all these things in his name, for his sake. Amen.